0: I'm David Smith, and you're listening to the Faith in Teaching podcast from the Kaisers Institute for Christian Teaching and Learning at Calvin University. In this series, we'll be talking with researchers and educators who are working to understand how Christian faith affects teaching, learning, and the way we do education. Today I'm really happy to have with me uh, a longtime colleague at uh, Calvin, Quentin Schultz, uh, who has been an eminent scholar in the communications field. A, a significant voice in Christian scholarship in that area. Um, you've written on a bunch of topics. You've written on communication topics like how to speak effectively. You've written on technology. You've um, a
1: book on resume writing.
0: Yeah, and now you've got a book out on teaching and learning, which sort of uh, gets you dangerously into our our sphere of conversation here. So, uh, um, so welcome. Thank you for being with us. Um, and I'm just going to start with why at this point, having written on all the other things you've written on, why a book about teaching at yeah this stage? what a great
1: question David and it, it's such an honor to be with you again I've always appreciated you and as you know I dedicated the book to two people and you're one of them because of your influence on me and on Christian education in general so here's the deal I study all kinds of communication and teaching itself is a communication practice absolutely no question about it And it's not the kind of practice that people say, well, communication is transmitting information. You go into teaching with that, you're going to be dead. It's more about developing shared understanding. That's the historical notion of communication. And so as I was getting close to retirement, now eight years ago, early retirement at Calvin, I was wondering about writing any books in the future. What what should my post-full-time teaching look like? And I was going through old syllabi and deciding which ones to keep, which ones to give to the archive here at Calvin, and which one to, ones to think maybe I should use in teaching adjunct somewhere. And I did start doing some adjunct teaching. And what I realized, having stepped back from teaching for a little bit, is that there were things I was doing in my teaching that were unusual and interesting. They had become common patterns for me. But when I began talking with other people about these things, they said, wow, that is very interesting. Uh, tell us some more. What else did you do, learn to do over the years as you wanted to communicate with rather than just transfer information to students? And also I realize how important teachers have been in my life. I grew up in a very difficult family situation in Chicago and t- many teachers became my father and mother figures, my mentors, role models, And I learned from them not just as teachers but as human beings and how they treated me for good or for bad. And I thought maybe I should approach teaching and just kind of put down in a book what I've learned about teaching. And the interesting thing was I started doing it as an academic book, David. I thought to myself, I'm going to prove once again what a great scholar I am here, you know and impress people with my intellect and my research abilities. And so I wrote the first three of eight chapters, each one to be about 30 to 35 pages. And I sent those out to a number of my colleagues who are communication colleagues. I said, what do you think about that? They said, you've just destroyed your own sense of communication. Who's gonna read this thing all the way through? It's, it's turgid, it's uninteresting. Give us stories, give us examples of what you did and keep it short. So I threw that stuff out, and I wrote 30 chapters, only three pages each. Now, it's kind of like going in the classroom. If you think you're going to hold students' attention for 45 minutes or 50 minutes or an hour straight without shifting gears pretty frequently, you're in trouble. Well, I need to do that with my readers. So I said, okay, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sit down and say, what are the major things that I've learned that I can pass along to other people, and even with different styles of teaching, may be applicable? Mm And it will be, in a sense, my uh, goodbye book because I don't know if I have another book in me.
0: <laughs> it's a delightful book, and, and partly for that reason, that, that the, the chapters are of a length that you could sit down and read one at lunchtime, um, and you'll come away with each chapter with a concrete idea of something you could go try out in your teaching. Um, so it's also none of the chapters on their own are kind of shooting for the moon in terms of you know you've got to completely reconstruct your syllabi or whatever, but but each one's got a um something concrete that you can you can move ahead with
1: yeah exactly um, uh, and i tried to get about three or four examples of a particular practice in each of those small chapters and then breeze in and breeze out so each okay. one's like a little play
0: yep.
1: often starting with a story of something that happened with me and then ending with that
0: So, so thinking about this from the other end because i think every book happens between a desire and an author to write it and a, a sort of an imagination of who might need it. Um, I know you've been doing quite a bit of traveling around to colleges, universities and so on, doing faculty development on this topic and trying to help people with this for a while now, because I remember we had a conversation a few years back um, when this book was kind of a gleam in your eye. What, what's your sense been of where people's needs are at? Where, what itch are you trying to scratch with yeah, this? Yeah, this is
1: a great question. First of all, let me say that I wrote this book thinking it would be a great help for college-level teachers. Now I'm getting these emails from people in K through 12 saying this chapter and this chapter really relates to what I'm doing. Thank you for writing it. And I'm saying, how can this be? And I realize that almost all of the chapters relate to teaching in general, Mm -hmm. not just teaching at a particular level, even though I may give examples from me teaching at the college level. But as I travel around a lot, three things are really striking me. One is the level of discouragement among teachers. Uh, I never remember anything like this in my 40 years of teaching. And I I used to do a lot of speaking at Christian conventions for K through 12 and all too. And there was always a sense of hope, you Mm -hmm. know, and uh, God is with us and things are moving along. But now there's a sense of discouragement with budget cuts and with uh, uh, people thinking that the leadership is not all that great. Donors are are stepping back and not being as supportive. Uh, And there's also a lot of stress, tremendous stress, and with it a lot of anxiety and depression that I hope we'll talk more about in a little while because that's uh, affected my life, and I think students are there for the most part uh, today as well. And then there's a lot of confusion. And the confusion, it seems to me, David, has as much as anything to do with how do you connect with younger people traditional age students now, not adult learners per se, when you don't understand their culture. Mm -hmm. You don't understand what they live in the midst of. And so you approach them in a way thinking this is going to work. It's worked before. And you have traditional assignments. You have traditional lesson plans. And then they don't work. And you see students that appear to be bored. They don't seem like they want to learn. How do you connect with them? Well, that's my bailiwick. That's what I've always tried to do from the very beginning as a communication person and as one who uh, empathizes with students significantly because of what I grew up in and how important the teachers were for me. So those are the things that I see when I go out there. And I want to say one thing about this confusion. There is a view of communication and of education that has to do with the transmission of information. And we, we really need to put that to rest Anybody who approaches teaching today thinking that I just need to get across this information, uh, rather than shared understanding, which touches the heart as well as the mind, they're not going to be very successful, Mm
0: -hmm. in my view. Right. Yeah, the whole metaphor of covering stuff goes with that as well. Right. You're just going to cover ground. Yeah, cover ground. Yeah, yeah.
1: There's a term, uh, it's often used now with online education, delivering information. And again, that's a transmission kind of term. And... uh, you say creating shared knowledge, creating shared understanding, uh, even sometimes just creating shared
0: o- awareness of things in the world mm-hmm. through education, that's much more powerful. So it strikes me throughout the book, you're, you're quite sensitive, again, not surprising for a communication scholar, to, um, to framing, right? that, that often it's just, it's just choosing which word you're gonna, you're gonna take something we all do in the classroom all the time and you're just gonna give it a half twist and just name it a different way to help us see it in a different way. And the whole book is called Servant Teaching. And I'm used to hearing about service learning and service learning projects and so on. You've called the book Servant Teaching. What's, what, what's going on in there?
1: Yeah, in fact, that's what I'm pushing now is this idea of servant teaching. It's kind of parallel to servant leadership. Uh, you know, the purpose of being a leader really is to serve others. But, of course, it has a strong Christian sense about it as well. So God calls us to be servants and to take care of the creation, uh, to take care of one another, to do it under the Lordship of Christ. So we're not in business for ourselves as teachers, we're not in business for our career per se, uh, but we're servants and we're servants of God, but we're servants then of our students as well. And what does that mean to think of our students as those that we serve uh, rather than those we deliver information to? Uh, for me, that's, that's really been a critical way of looking at it. I, I think there are three aspects of this biblical servanthood that we're all called to in whatever our professions, teaching one of them. And uh, that is skill, to be able to do it and to do it well, With uh, I, I say with excellence and compassion. To do it with faith, that it's not just a matter of what we do, but God is with us, particularly through the power of the Holy Spirit, making things happen. And with virtue, with a certain quality of character. Uh, we could say virtue is intrinsically good qualities of character, like being a patient teacher, uh, like being a, a, a courageous teacher, and trying new things and so on. So that's how it's kind of gripped me as I think back on my career and what I've been doing with adjunct teaching since I retired from full-time teaching.
0: Mm-hmm. What, one of my favorite things about the book, actually, is, is the way you talk about students and, you know, this idea of serving students. And I remember when I first started t- teaching at Calvin, it was the first time I taught in higher education, and, and I got my first few years of teaching evaluations back. And one thing that kept coming as a refrain on teaching evaluations was... Um, this professor really respects students, and it kind of puzzled me because, because I thought, why well, even say it? Doesn't everybody else? Doesn't right? <laughs> it's like, right. Is there anybody out there sort of actually actively disrespecting all their students? Um, and and it, I, I'm still sort of fascinated, just like what what elicits that response? Um, and um, I mean, the more I've lived in this this sphere, I think there is a fair amount of writing and the sort of the. Chronicle of Higher Education kind of orbit where students are basically the butt of faculty cynicism um, and uh, you know students are the ones who don't read books properly like I did when I was a lad and they don't turn in their stuff on time like I did when I was a lad and all the rest of it and uh, I, I was just struck by the tone of your book that there's a very high level of respect for students uh, all the way through. Um, And you've even got a chapter on that, right? Respect students. So you obviously think this is something we need to explicitly (laughs) mention as well. So, I mean, talk about that. How do we respect students? To love students.
1: To love students. So, when I was taking uh, Spanish, I, I studied Spanish and German in high school. And I was in a Spanish class, and at that time, my family life was horrible. I was living with my paranoid, schizophrenic mother, she was incapable of raising me. We were living in a trailer. We were what used to be called white trailer trash. We had no money. I had very few clothes. I, in fact, during high school, I went to not a single social event because I felt like I was so far away from it and couldn't participate. And so I'm in a Spanish class, and the teacher calls on me and asks me to recite something. I have no idea what it was. But I was not prepared. In fact, I was often not prepared. And so I stood up because that's what she wanted us to do when we recited. And I said, I, I, I'm sorry. And I was so nervous. And she looked at me. And then she looked at the rest of the students and she said, Pedro, that's the name she had given me. I guess there's no translation of Quentin. But she said, Pedro, what are we going to do with you I'm trying to survive in my life. Students are whole persons. Students have life outside of education. Some of them are working to try to survive. Some of them have horrible family situations. Um, I've had students that parents went through divorces and it was difficult on them. I've had students where both of their parents died in the same semester. I mean, it goes on and on. Anxiety and depression right now are huge. In fact, I looked deeply into the research on this, David, because I was detecting it myself, having lifelong problems with anxiety and depression, actually opportunities in a sense, because facing those head-on is, is a good opportunity in life. I think it makes you a better person. And 30 to 40% of, of students today, at least, by uh, college age are suffering from anxiety and or depression. So these are whole students and we have to respect them. There are a lot of different ways to do that that I talk about in the, in the book, spe- Specific Practices. One of the things I learned is not to call them kids. They can call themselves kids and refer to me to other students as kids and all, but I don't want to think of them that way. I want to think of them as colleagues. Mm-hmm. So sometimes when I send an email out to them, I will, I will use the word colleagues. Most of the time, I'll use a phrase related to the subject of the class. So when I teach public speaking, it's servant speaking. We're there to serve our audiences. This is Augustine, to love our audiences, as our neighbors. So I'll say, dear servant speakers. Or if I'm teaching media criticism, dear media critics. So to say to them, hey, I respect you. We're at the same level here. You may not know as much as me, but when it comes right down to it, we are both made in the image and likeness of God Mm -hmm. and worthy of respect. So, and this, of course, runs through the book, the respect you, you get it. I I love students. Mm-hmm. I, that's what it comes down to. And yeah. when you, you love your students, you respect them. Yeah.
0: And I like how you translate it into very concrete actions then. So um, I'd, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the comments you make about where to meet with students Yeah, because um, that was just really striking <laughs> to me as this really simple little concrete thing, but it's sort of a piece with this big picture stuff oh, okay. you've just been talking about of respecting and honoring students. Right? Yeah, this, so, so
1: this is interesting. Um, I'm a communication guy and I'm always, my, my wife doesn't watch, want to watch a movie or TV with me because I'm always making comments about how they're communicating or miscommunicating whatever. And it occurred to me one day that uh, nobody was coming to so-called office hours. Students just didn't come. I mean, it was rare. I'd get maybe two students a semester. I'm saying, why am I doing office hours? And why is the university requiring me to do office hours when they don't work? And I thought, well, what would work? And so I'm talking to students. How do they get together? They get together. They text each other early in the morning and say, I'll meet you at such and such a place, such and such a time, or where are you now? Let's get together. So early in the morning, I send a text out to my students. If they don't have a phone or they don't want text messages from me, it's on email. And I say, I'm gonna be in such and such a place today at such and such a time, and I vary it. And I say, meet me there if you want. Maybe it's the cafe or one of the cafes on campus, and and students would come by. Because I was, in a sense, co-opting their own way of communicating. (laughs) And it, it was not intimidating. And what I found is, especially international students, And within international students, particularly the Asian students, who were least likely ever to come to talk with me when they had a problem, Uh, and and they would show up right away Mm -hmm. because this was so great. It was a kind of fellowship, open fellowship. And then I would bring along work to do in case nobody showed up. And I think uh, typically I was seeing more students that way in one semester than all the rest of my colleagues in my department combined with regular office hours which weren't working. Uh, so it, it was a great practice. I love to do that. Even mm-hmm. now when I am I go on evaluations of communication programs for different schools, I will ask them to send a note out to all of the majors in communication and say, I'm gonna be at such and such a place at such and such a times and stop by. Yeah. And they do. Yeah. And that's how I get the, the most honest opinions of what's going on in the department from them.
0: Right. I remember hearing a speaker some years ago um, Talking about how, you know, if you've got a student who's not from a family background where there's high education levels or where reading is a thing, et cetera, what it's like to walk into a professor's office where the walls are all lined with like books, floor to floor to ceiling um, and how that might not just communicate aspiration, right? That might be quite intimidating. Right. Um, and so uh, so yeah, this idea of maybe, you know, holding office hours at the coffee shop, right, is, uh, right. is just a simple way of changing the frame. Yeah. And about uh, that
1: too, I, I uh, talk about what I, some things I say on the first day. And one of those is how to refer to me. Now that may seem strange. You know, I, okay, I have a PhD. You can call me doctor. You can call me professor. You can call me Mr. Please don't call me by my first name. Um, That may happen later in life, but for now let's not do that, and I give them some options. And I will sometimes get an email right back from students, thank you for telling me that and explaining that. I never knew what to call, and it's the first generation students that get most confused about that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Do Less With Less is one of the chapter titles, which... uh there's a lot of permutations on that phrase. Tell us why you chose that. Well, one. I, go,
1: I go around um, the different schools, and the faculty saying, boy, they're telling us we have to do more with less. We have to do more with less. We have to do more with less. It's like a broken record. Yeah. you know. <laughs> now, there are a lot of professions that's true in, but in education, I think it's really true. And it occurred to me when I was looking at what I do in my teaching that I've been more successful when I've done tried to do less with the fewer resources that I have. And, and so the busy, when I got too busy, and I was requiring the students to be too busy, less learning was taking place. We were all on the fly, we were all running. I talk in the book about uh, students always looking for the next thing do. That's what they're focusing on, the next thing do. So even any carryover from class to class or assignment to assignment is difficult. Mm-hmm. I would assign, let's say, a paper or a speech and then the, the next one, the students would have the same problems. Yeah. I think they haven't had any other ways of improving their learning that way uh, that I talk about in the book. But I thought, we're, we're all running, a, to use the Kierkegaard uh, quote that I use in the book, mm-hmm. we're all running, uh, mm-hmm. uh, but we're not on the racetrack. And so let's slow it down, make sure we're on the racetrack, we know what our goals are, we know we're accomplishing the goals, and let's do less my guess is David at the college level anyway uh, within six months after graduation students have forgotten eighty percent of what they've learned well there are some courses we teach that have to be very high information so I have a separate chapter on teaching a high information course but for the most part I think if we focus on what's most essential what's most important and we reiterate that and we find different examples and illustrations and different practices, things students can do, sometimes hands-on, we're better often if we're trying to do more and more and more. Mm-hmm. And even the textbooks, uh, you know, I have a chapter on textbooks, because I'm not a big fan of a lot of textbooks that are just too big, too much information. They're killers, and they don't, they don't distinguish between what's important and what isn't. Mm-hmm.
0: Does the covenant syllabus fit in here? Because I was quite taken with that phrase as well—the uh, the idea of syllabus as a covenant, the sense of like agreeing together what what we are right. and aren't going to get done. Yeah, the, um, this is funny. So I had some fears about
1: writing this book for, uh, that that some of my colleagues, not just here at Calvin, but other places, would think, "And this guy doesn't have any standards. You know, he's he's just lost it. He's too easy." Well. One of the ways people might put me into that category is by looking at how I treat syllabi. So I put a syllabus together and then I send it out in advance to students before the course even begins. And I say, now, we're going to talk about this and we're probably going to make some changes the first day. So please read it in advance. Now, one advantage of that is they'll actually look at it before that first day. Not everyone will, but many of them will. Wow, we're going to have some input on this? What's going on here? Uh, And, of course, some students may be thinking they can get me to reduce the requirements or whatever, and that's okay. Uh, But I always find things when I send out the syllabus in advance and we discuss it that I wasn't thinking about in advance. Uh, One of those is the dates for things and how those dates are related to school events that are going to be important. Another thing is whether or not, I found it incredibly important, whether or not I have a mix of ways that I'm evaluating students. Students have preferences on how they would want to be evaluated. And I think as teachers, we all tend to prefer certain ways of testing or evaluating. And uh, it's better to have a range. Now, I say in the book, there are certain things I'm not good at that I shy away from. One of those is writing multiple choice exams. I've tried my whole life to do that well, and I can't do it well. I would have to run them by other people. Students would challenge me in class on questions, and I'd say, you're probably right. I think you could interpret it that way. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I learned if more than half the students in a class miss a particular question, I throw that question out, and then those who got it right, I give them extra credit. Mm -hmm. So you you find workarounds. Uh, But a, a syllabus is a kind of covenant. I say to my students first day of class now, one of the things in the syllabus is my... Responsibilities for you. So a covenant works two ways. It's like our covenant with God. God says, you will be my people, and this is what you must do. And then we say, yes, we are your people, and this is what we will do. And I say to the students, I will have all assignments back and graded within two class periods. And I tell them that up front. I said, now, you're going to try to get your stuff in on time too, aren't you? Because when you see me actually doing this, you're going to realize that this works both ways. Mm -hmm. Not to say I would never accept a late assignment, but it's a whole attitude that comes through in the covenant. And the way I do that, here's one secret in the book, uh, I pre-schedule my time for grading before the semester begins. So around the times when something is due and coming in, I, I have not scheduled other things. And I've got a couple of days where, except for meeting with students, I've got a lot of time to do the grading. So there are ways that we can accomplish these things.
0: Mm -hmm. So a last word, if people can't get to the bookstore this week and uh, pick up a copy, um, what's one example or idea from the book that we haven't mentioned that you wanna leave people
1: with? Yeah, first let me say, don't go to Amazon to buy the book because they're refusing to discount it. I'm ticked off at Amazon right now. So uh, go to my website, QuentinSchultz.com, QuentinSchultz.com, and there's a link there where you can get the book for about half price until we can get uh, Amazon back on track. Uh, One thing is gratitude, the first chapter. The biggest response I've gotten from the book is this idea that we have to be grateful as teachers. We have to fill our lives with gratitude. And so before I get out of bed in the morning, I thank God for another day of life. In my office at home, I have a a little board up on the wall that I call the gratitude board where I post things that I'm grateful for, photos, ticket stubs, all kinds of things. And I see that every time I go in and out of the office. It's like a doxology before I walk out of the office. Gratitude is incredibly important. Worship is critical. And then a second thing I'll mention, one chapter in the book that I'm getting a lot of response to is the one on evaluating ourselves. It seems to me... It's so easy to do that everybody ought to do this. You A few times during the semester, get some feedback from students and then make some adjustments along the way. And so I use index cards. I just hand them out and I ask the students four questions. I say, what's going well? What's not going well? What can I do better as the teacher? And then I say, what can you do better as the student? And then I go back over those cards the next class, first thing, and say, here's what I've learned. Uh, simple practice, but these this idea of just having a course evaluation at the end, and then
0: we don't know during the course what's going on,
1: I think is very limited.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Thank you for coming to talk about the book. Thank you for giving us a little insight into what's in it. I would recommend the book to folk who are listening. Um, as we said earlier, the chapters are really short. You can. Uh, Get through them in a lunch break. uh, Find something to to work on in your teaching. There's lots of wisdom in here. Um, There's a a comment on the back from Perry Glanzer who says, Reading this book is like having that wise, older teaching mentor that faculty rarely have. I think it's what this book provides. It's somebody who can make suggestions over your shoulder. Have you tried doing it this way? Um, And so I love that about the book. The the book is, uh, the title is Servant Teaching. Practices for Renewing Christian Higher Education by Quentin Schultz. And if you're using search engines, that's spelled S-C-H-U-L-T-Z-E. Quentin Schultz, Servant Teaching, Practices for Renewing Christian Higher Education. Get a copy. You won't regret it. Thank you, Quentin, for coming and talking to us. Thank you, David. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Faith in Teaching podcast from the Kaiser Institute for Christian Teaching and Learning at Calvin University. Learn more at www.pedagogy.net.